The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I'd like you to turn to uh, Philippians 3. I want to read a few verses out of here that we're going to look at this morning. And as you can see, the theme of this section of Philippians is the surpassing value of knowing Christ. There's a real sense in which the Christian life is knowing Christ. That's what it is. That's what it's about. I grew up in a church that uh, talked about Jesus incessantly. Uh, We sang about Jesus. Almost every song was about him. I was thinking about this song this morning. I put it in my, my Bible. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me and the fairest of 10,000 in my blessed Lord I see. That's the kind of stuff we sang. But as a little kid, I came to believe that that was the most important thing about Christianity was the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's why we called it Christianity, huh? And today, Paul, as he addresses the Philippians, this church that he loves so much, and he's writing to them from prison, and he's in prison because he has been a preacher of the gospel. And so as he writes to them, he's trying to encourage them, first of all, to live worthy of the gospel, to live a life that reflects the value, the weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what what Christ has done in order to reconcile us to God. And then in the second half of the the book, the last two chapters, chapters three and four, he's telling them that they should not succumb to the attacks on the gospel that that they were beginning to experience in Philippi and other places by the Judaizers who were basically telling people, that's great that you have your little religion, but what you need is something much bigger than that. You need to become Jews in your lifestyle. You need to come under the law. You need to have all the markings of being a Jew in order for God to truly accept you. And so Paul is on this, and he's telling them that this kind of message is undermining the gospel, the good news. And it will rob you not only of the joy of the gospel, but of the, just of the firmness of the gospel in your life. And so I want you to look with me. I'm going to go back. We, we finished up by looking through the first four verses of Philippians 3 last week. And I want to begin back there just because Paul, what Paul is doing, he's saying these people brag about who they are, about how Jewish they are and how they are under the law and how they have the true uh, truth from the Old Testament. And so the apostle Paul says, hey, if anyone wants to brag about what they've done in the flesh, I can brag more. And so he describes these things. And these were things that were really important to him before he found Christ or before Christ found him. He says, verse four, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, that is what's true of me just naturally. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day, what that means is he was a natural born Jew. And so they they circumcised their boys, their baby boys at eight days. That was according to the law. And Paul says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, which was, of course, Jacob's favorite son, Benjamin, the youngest That's how fathers are. They love the youngest the most, they say. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, which was the most radical of the Jews. They held the law up and they held the Old Testament up, the Hebrew scriptures up, as being of ultimate importance. They would be called the fundamentalists among the Jews during his day. 
And then he says, as to zeal, that is my earnestness, I was a persecutor of the church. And you think, well, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Well, he did that because he thought the church was undermining who he was as a Jew. That the, the Jewish Messiah, they were claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, but he knew that the Jewish Messiah would have certain characteristics that he didn't believe Jesus had. And that was primarily because he didn't listen to him. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. In other words, he tried his best and he, did, he put out his full energy to keep the restrictions of the law. As to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, whatever ga- things were gained to me, he just mentioned seven things that were gained to him. Now what he means by that, these things made me important. They gave me a sense of my own identity. I knew I was acceptable and I was important because of these things. But then he says in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I, ca- I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's as though he's a CPA and he's got this little paper that he's got all the other thing listed that's an asset and everything listed that's a, that's a negative. And he says, I found out that everything that I counted on as making me important and acceptable and worthwhile was worth nothing worth absolutely nothing in light of the value of knowing Christ. And so he says, I count all things to be lost. More than that, I count all things to be lost, not just those things, like seven things I mentioned, but everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. Now that word rubbish, is the Greek word skubala, is a very strong word. It's a word that you wouldn't use in public. It's a word you wouldn't use in polite conversation. This is nothing but dung. It is worthless. It's without value. Everything about me that I used to think was really important is worthless so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That is derived from my performance. How well I lived according to the law. Because see, remember, Paul found out that it wasn't just the externals that God expected. It was the internals. It was the heart. And so when he ran into the covenant, the commandment that said, thou shalt not covet, that is, you should not desire what your neighbor has. He said, I began to experience temptation to break that law over and over and over again. But he says... I wanted to gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which through faith in Christ, that which is through faith in Christ, simply trusting Christ and what Christ did on my behalf as the basis of my acceptance with God. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, trusting, trusting in Christ alone that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, what in the world is, is Paul talking about? You notice he's mentioned suffering here. And uh, that, a good question is, uh, are Christians supposed to be prepared for suffering? Is that something we're supposed to be prepared for? Yes. Absolutely. It's a vital part of the Christian life. It isn't just because the days are evil or because the path of righteousness is costly, but but the Bible promises that God's people will suffer. Really? Yes, really. 
Listen to this, Acts 14.22, Paul speaking in Lystra, Iconium, and, and Antioch in the first missionary journey said this to these young believers who had just come to faith in Christ. He said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. In other words, you're going to have tribulation if you follow Christ. And I probably could ask the question, since you started seriously following Christ, have you experienced tribulation? Everybody who has seriously begun to follow Christ would say, yes, I have. I've experienced trouble. Why is that? Couldn't God keep us from having trouble? Couldn't he do that? Isn't God able to to banish all the bad things that you would ever face and keep you from having to go through trouble? Well, of course he could. But he doesn't because he loves you. And he has a purpose and a plan for your life. Then in John 15, 20, Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. People find out you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You're going to experience persecution, not by everybody, but you're going to experience persecution because Jesus promised it. And then in 1 Peter 4, Peter says to persecuted believers, that's who he's writing to. He's writing to people who scattered out from Jerusalem because they were being so persecuted because they were following Christ. So one of the things we don't really think about is in the first century when Jesus came, the nation of Israel as a whole rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't think their Messiah would look like that and act like that and experience what he experienced. They thought the fact that he died on a cross proved that he was not the Messiah. It proved that he was a faker, that he was not the true Messiah. And Paul says, what I have discovered is that, that Jesus Christ is not only the Messiah, he is the one who has paved the way for me to have a relationship with God, to be reconciled to God. And if you remember, the apostle Paul was going out to persecute believers when, he, when Christ confronted him. He was on his way to Damascus. And all of a sudden, this light shines so bright, it knocks him off of his, his, his animal that he was on. And he fell to the ground. And he was blinded for a while. And, uh, and the person who did this was Jesus. And Jesus said to Paul, as he's laying on the ground, blinded by the light, Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? And you know what Saul said. Saul, which is his Jewish name, said, who are you? Lord, (laughs) if you're laying on the ground because the glory of the person has caused you to fall flat on your back, you probably would be tempted to call him Lord. And so he says, well, who are you, Lord? In other words, why do you think I'm persecuting you? And Jesus told him who he was. He was persecuting him. He was persecuting him by persecuting his people. So this is the other part of suffering. When we suffer, it is with Christ. So what are God's purposes in suffering? Why is it such a big deal? Why has he called us to suffer? First of all, it's because in suffering we come to hope more fully in God. It causes us to stop trusting in other things and trust in him alone. Putting our confidence in him and less of our confidence in the things of the world. Today, uh, there's so much talk about how vulnerable you are by being online. And how people can steal your identity uh, I got an, an email from some company that said uh, we, couldn't, we couldn't collect your payment for the bill because you need to change your, your payment details. And it had a little button to click. 
In other words, they would ask me, what, give me the number on your account, on your credit card, and uh, the, the, the security code so that they could collect the bill, which I did have no clue what it was. But what happens is in this world is our, the vulnerability that we have, and we hear about people suffering things that just seem unbelievable, uh, totally out of their control. But first of all, what it does is it casts us on God, doesn't it? We begin to call out to him. I was telling somebody the other day that the, the greatest motivator for prayer, especially husbands and wives, is going through trials. Uh, that's when I learned how to pray with my wife. It was when we were going through a big trial. And I didn't have any idea what was going to happen, how this was going to turn out. And so we started praying together. And I discovered through that, this is, this is one of the best parts of the Christian life, is for husbands, husbands and wives to pray together, to actually lift one another up and lift up these needs in their, their family together. We encourage each other in prayer. So that's the first thing that, that suffering does. It drives you to God. Second, we come to know Christ better than, than when we are sharing his sufferings. Now, I've mentioned before, sharing the sufferings of Christ, it doesn't mean that we're suffering uh, like he did on the cross. It means that we suffer by having, we, we take the gospel to people and we're going to experience sufferings for doing that. We had a guy in the church that I used to be at um, who wanted to be a missionary in the Philippines. And he was in our church for some time, and we didn't think he was ready. But the missions board under which he was going were convinced he should go and go then. And we said, well, we don't really think he's ready for that. But he went, and he lasted about six months. It was just too much. The cultural shock was overwhelming. And he ended up coming home. I remember going and seeing him up in Washington, where he actually lived. And uh, he was stunned by that whole experience. He just wasn't prepared for what he was going to experience to take the gospel to people. He thought that he would, you know, most people think being a missionary, you're going to be put on people's shoulders. They're going to think you're the most wonderful person in the world. Well, a lot of times what happens is they want to kill you. They want to do away with you. That can happen as well. And so what happens is we come to know Christ better in more intimacy because of what we're suffering. So how does God prepare us for suffering? Well, he lets us experience his love as we go through suffering. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received an entrance into the grace in which we stand. Now that means... Your standing in grace means that all of God's dealings with you as a believer are a manifestation of his grace. It's never what you deserve. It's what he deserves to give you and how he deserves to treat you. Then he goes on and talks about even sufferings. We can can boast in sufferings as Christians. Why? Well, this is what he says. We can exult in sufferings, boast in sufferings, because suffering produces endurance. Endurance. And endurance produces proven character. You know what proven character is? Ask somebody who hires people, and they'll tell you that that's where they miss a lot of times. They find out that somebody they hire doesn't have proven character. 
You know, like there's, there's this one huge major thing that a person has to have in order to be a good employee. They have to show up for work. Isn't that amazing? I had a guy tell me that's the biggest problem I have is hiring people who won't show up for work. Isn't that amazing? And so Paul says we exult in tribulation and trouble because troubles are when we learn and develop this ability to be faithful to Christ, to stay at the task. And not only that, he says this this perseverance produces proven character and proven character produces what? What does proven character produce? I'm really disappointed in you all that you don't know first, uh, Romans 5, 1 through 5. It produces hope. And, and then he says this, and this hope that's produced by endurance, this hope will never disappoint you. You know what he means by that? You know it was when you were a kid and, and maybe there was somebody in your family that would make you big promises and never keep them? They would make you the promise because it made you happy and they enjoyed making you happy, but then they wouldn't keep the promise. Have you ever had anybody like that in your life? Talk to my wife. You know how it is. You, you make these promises to make a person feel good, but then you forget all about it and you don't follow up. And he says, this hope here, this will never disappoint you. You can hope in God. And to hope means to earnestly expect God to keep his promises about the future. And so he says that, that going through trials increases your trust in God and you experience something wonderful. You experience hope in the midst of the trials. And he says this hope doesn't, this hope doesn't disappoint you. It doesn't shame you down because of why? Because the Holy Spirit is gushing forth the love of God in your heart. That's, that's what that word means, pouring forth into your heart. It means gushing. It's like a, a geyser. It's just constantly, the, the Spirit of God is producing in your heart a sense of God's love for you in the worst of circumstances. I mean, God, if God cares about me, I've had people ask me this, if God cares about me, why am I going through this? Well, the answer is because God cares for you. And he will use your suffering as a part of his process of producing an awareness of his love for you. You know how big that is, being aware of God's love for you? It's huge. It's massive. It's the, it's the thing that will keep you on track in the Christian life when you're aware of God's love for you. God has loved you in a way that can't be measured. You can't measure it. You can't measure the height, the width, the depth of it. It's bigger than anything you could ever imagine, the, the way that God loves you. So what God does is he loves us through suffering. He manifests his love to us while we're suffering. In fact, uh, men who have written about suffering are men who have suffered themselves. Any of you know who Jerry Bridges is? You ever read one of his books? A couple of you have. And all you ladies that were in the Bible study, you forgot his name, right? Jerry Bridges. Well, Jerry Bridges... Uh, his, uh, his co-worker used to live about three doors down from me, and he was always telling me about Jerry Bridges, what an incredible guy he was. He wrote a bunch of books, and one of the books he wrote was Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. The reason he wrote this book was he had suffered his whole life. When he was 14 years old, he heard his mother call out to him in the other room in the middle of the night. When he got into the room, she took her last breath and died. And so he was the only one who was there with her. He saw that happen. And after that, he always lived with an infirmity, a disability, 
that was serious. And a few years later, after he got married, his wife died of cancer, and he was brokenhearted. Well, he writes about the depth of suffering because he's gone through this depth of suffering with Christ. See, the joy of suffering isn't the suffering. It's Christ. It's knowing Christ. And this is what Paul is talking about in this context, is God will use all kinds of means in order for you to come to value knowing Christ above all things. See, you may not have picked it up, but what Paul is saying is, all those things about myself that I had counted to be so valuable, you know all that stuff you've got uh, stored in the storage locker? that you know it has no real value, or maybe you think it does, because that's why you're hanging on to it. It's not like that. It's, it's the things about yourself. What gives you confidence? What gives you a sense that you're worthwhile? What gives you a sense that your life really counts? Paul says, I wrote right over that with a, le- with a red inked pen, loss, in light of knowing Christ. This is the great treasure that I have received, is knowing Christ. Horatius Bonner is another guy who wrote about suffering. He wrote a book called When God's Children Suffer. In the introduction of that book, this is what he says. Listen to this short paragraph. He says, this book is written by one who is seeking himself to profit by trial. He says, I want to learn how to profit from the troubles I'm going through. And trembles lest it should pass over him as the wind over a rock, leaving it as hard as it ever was, having no effect on me. I don't want to go through trials and not draw me deeper into my relationship with Christ. You ever had those kind of trials? That you were no better for it? You were no closer to the Lord? He says, I am one who would in every sorrow draw near to God. That's what I want. I want to be that kind of person who draws near to God when I go through a sorrow, that I may know him And I would be unwilling to confess that as yet, I know little. Well, he did suffer in a great way. Both both Bridges and Bonner learned that suffering is a path into the heart of God, into knowing God and knowing Christ. And so they were willing to go through suffering. Remember Stephen, who was stoned? Remember him? And he, he was arrested, and he was put on trial for his faith in Christ. And he was given a chance to preach. That is, to give a defense of why he was putting his trust in Christ. And the authorities in Jerusalem were ready to stone him to death. And so they said, give your defense. Well, in his defense, what he did was he preached the gospel. And as he was preaching the gospel, the religious leaders were enraged. They ground their teeth. Have you ever seen anybody that, that angry? They grind their teeth. They're ready to drag him out of the city and kill him. And Luke tells us this. Luke writes in Acts 7.55 when he tells his account, he says, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. (laughs) In other words, there's a special revelation, a special intimacy that's prepared for those who suffer for the name of Christ. First Peter 4, Peter writes, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If people get on your case because you're a Christian, you are blessed, Peter says. Because the spirit of glory and of, of God rests upon you. 
In other words, God reserves a special coming and resting of the Spirit upon a person's life when they suffer for the name of Christ. Now, that's a second blessing, isn't it? That you'd be blessed simply because you're willing to be reproached for the name of Christ. One, pur- one purpose of the suffering of the saints is that your relationship with God would become less formal and less artificial and less distant and more real and personal and close, intimate and deep. It's interesting. Some of us think that we want, we want to draw closer to Christ more than Christ wants us to or wants to draw close to us. That isn't true. No matter, no matter how engaged you are in pursuing God, he wants you close to him more than you want yourself close to him. He's the one who brings things in your life to draw you close. Now, Paul had plenty to brag about what we saw there in verses 5 and 6, these seven things about which his sense of significance and security rested before he became a Christian. But he, dis- he discovered that there was something that were, was worth so much more. If you ask yourself the question, what makes me feel significant? Is it your looks, your appearance? Is it your abilities? Is it some artistic ability you have or something? What is it that makes you feel really worthwhile? Well, Paul is saying, I discovered that everything I had looked to as the basis of my worth was worthless. It was a total loss. And verse 7 tells how he prepared himself by taking his whole world and turning it upside down. Just by reversing values. What he did was Christ told him how much he would have to suffer, and Paul prepared himself for that. He began to value knowing Christ above everything else. He says, whatever things were gained to me, that's verses 5 and 6, what he said about himself. All those things, he says, those things I have counted as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Before he was a Christian, he was a very accomplished person, the Apostle Paul. He was very intelligent. Uh, he, was, he had advanced as a, a man of his age in, the, in that culture he was in, and yet he came face to face with Christ. That was pretty dramatic, wasn't it? He's on the road to Damascus, and Jesus stands in the path and strikes him off his animal. He's laying on the ground, blinded by the light. That was a dramatic meeting. But guess what the Bible says about you, how you met Christ? It says, the God who said, let light shine in darkness, cause the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ to shine in your hearts. Sounds similar, doesn't it? That wasn't quite as dramatic. Maybe you didn't fall on the ground. But when you met Christ, it was because the Father opened your eyes to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And he wants you to be stunned by that for the rest of your life. Now, there's more than this, even. He says, more than that, verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost. Not just those things that I used to think were so important about me, but I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, a deeper understanding of Christ leads him to put everything but Christ in the first column and write loss over it. Worthless. My wife and I are having this heated discussion. It isn't really heated, but I don't like it. And she wants me to to get rid of a lot of my books. 
What's really bad is she wants me to stop buying books. Because she's wondering what she's going to do with all these books when I keel over. I told her, I'll be glad to move them somewhere. They're not bothering you. Most of my books are down at the office in a couple rooms down there. But you know why I have all those books? Because I value them as saying something about me. I buy good books. Doesn't mean a thing. It means nothing. Knowing Christ is what means something. You can read a thousand books and not know Christ any better, can't you? I know this. I've experienced this. Knowing Christ is doing things as simple as, I hate to use this word, it might really stumble you, but having a quiet time. You know what that means? Some of you are shaking your heads knowingly, so some of you know what it is. It's having a time every day in which you focus upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. You come to his word, and you focus on what is being said, and you ask yourself the question, what does this mean, and what does it mean for me? How does this reveal God and Christ to me? What kind of implications are there here for the way that I live my life? I've told you before, Judy isn't here, so I can say this because she told me to stop saying it. Uh, I've told you this before, back in the 70s, I lived on Barber Lane. No, not Barber Lane. I lived on uh, Pinot Valley Road. And um, God opened my eyes to something that the scriptures say. I was just reading the scriptures, and I ran into this statement. And he said, uh, husbands, love your wife. And if I ask myself, okay, what does this imply about God? He's a faithful God. He loves his people. What does it reveal about me and how I should respond to this? Pretty simple, huh? That's one of those easy ones. I'm supposed to love my wife. The only problem is, if I love my wife the way Christ loved the church, I have to love her more than I love me. And that's tough. Right, guys? That's a challenge, isn't it? Because you are so lovable. There's so many things about you that are so wonderful. How could you possibly love your wife more than you love yourself? But that's what he's commanded us to do. And so uh, coming to know Christ includes spending time with him. And the way you spend time with him is through the word of God. Having a quiet time every morning, every morning or evening. But I mean on a daily basis where you're in the Word of God and you're actually reading it for a purpose because you want to draw closer to Christ. You want to know Him and understand Him and have that knowledge impact your life. You know, Paul has started with the most precious accomplishments and things about himself. And he said, I wrote loss over that. It meant nothing in light of, in light of, coming to know Christ. It is worth so much more. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but there was a commentary that I have who, who actually claimed that uh, he, he thought it was, I don't know, if I've never heard this from anybody else, so I don't know if this is some thought he had, but he said some commentators believe that the rich young ruler was the Apostle Paul before his conversion. 
I don't think that's true. There's no evidence of it. But what it is is a real parallel. I, I, I hate to do this to you, but turn back to Mark chapter 10, just a second. <laughs> Bible drill. Mark chapter 10, and look at verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, that is Jesus. The, Mark, the, the book of Mark is about Jesus. It's telling, it's giving you a Jesus life. It says, as he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt down before him and asked, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. In other words, are you implying that you know that I'm God? And Jesus says to him, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. He gives all the commandments that have to do with loving people, loving your neighbor as yourself. All those commandments, those, those, half, those half of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And this rich young ruler says to Jesus, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, this is Mark, and Mark adds this. This is unique to Mark. It says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack. Who does Jesus think he is? He can actually see into this guy's heart. Yes, that's exactly what happened. And he says, one thing you lack This is the solution to it. Go and sell everything you have, all your possessions, all that you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Now, this man at this point had no clue what Jesus was offering him. He was offering him something beyond value evaluation. It was the most valuable thing in all the world. If Jesus would have invited you to walk with him, come and follow me, there couldn't be any higher gift that he could possibly give you than to command you to come and follow him. And, and then we're told, Jesus told a, a treasure, I mean, he told a, a parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. Why would he hide it? He didn't want the owner of the field to know that treasure was there. So he says, a man found it and hid it, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You get it? He sees this treasure as worth more than everything he has. Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler when he told him that if you value me above all things, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, don't give it to me. He wasn't a TV preacher. Don't sell everything you have and give it to me. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. What was he trying to get him to see? If he could have shifted, if he could have come to value Christ above all things, he would have experienced eternal salvation at that moment. He would have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus is telling in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure and hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field so he can get that treasure. Becoming a Christian is discovering that Christ is a treasure chest of joy. It's discovering that he's better than anything you have ever imagined. 
Having a relationship with Christ is, is better than anything you will ever experience in all of life. Knowing Jesus Christ. And so this man did it. He wrote loss over all of his stuff. He sold everything he had and went and bought the field because he saw this treasure. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's, it's, it's something that when your eyes are open to it, you see its value is beyond anything that you could measure. It's, more, it's worth more than anything. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 14, no one of you can be my disciple who does not take leave of all of his own possessions. In other words, it's going to cost you that. You know why? Because you're going to be ridiculed. You're going to suffer for being a follower of Christ. And unless you come to value him above all things, you're going to actually say, you know, it's just not worth it. Just isn't worth it. But what Jesus means here is you have to write loss in big red letters over all your possessions and everything that you count to be valuable. What do you count to be valuable right now in your life? So what he's claiming is that knowing Christ is more important. But how do I, a mere mortal, get to know him? He says, knowing him is the most valuable thing in all of life. But how could I ever get to know him? Well, right here in this text, back, I'm in Mark 10, but let me go back to to Philippians. Right here in this text, he tells us three things you're all familiar with. That they are, this is the path of coming to know him. And so in verse 9, you are to experience justification. That is, trusting Christ alone is your righteousness. That's what justification is, by the way. You don't have to think, you don't have to come up with some big theological description. It is, it is seeing that Christ alone is your righteousness. And what God does in response to that faith is he declares you to be right with him. Right with God. If you're right with God, that's the most important place you could ever be, is to be right with God. And so justification, I come to know Christ through trusting him as my righteousness. In verse 10, he says, sanctification, know Christ more and become more like him. Live your life in fellowship with him so that you're being transformed into the very image of Christ. Why should you have a quiet time? Because your relationship with Christ is the only thing coming to know Christ and getting to know him better and better is the only thing that will transform you into his image. And then finally, glorification. This is really fascinating. Remember in Romans, Romans 8, 28 through 30, it says, those whom he foreknew or foreloved is the idea. Those whom he foreloved, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What he means by that is God laid out a plan. Do you like the plan? Sometimes it's kind of scary, isn't it? But he he said everyone that he foreloved, he laid out a plan to conform them into the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, that's the word which means to lay out the plan, he called. And those he called, he justified. Because everyone that he calls, personally calls, they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're declared to be right with God. And he says everyone who is justified is glorified. He uses a past tense. Look around the room a second. You see any glorified saints here? No. And yes. 
And this is why. That expression means it's so sure that you're going to be glorified. That is, that, you, that God's going to finish this process of conforming into the image of Christ and that you are going to actually experience the glory of God living in, in the very presence of God. That he can put it in a past tense as though it's already happened. It's so sure. Done. It's done. He is going to conform you to the image of Christ. If you're one of those that he set his love on and laid out a plan to conform you and called you to himself and you believed, he is also guaranteed that you're going to be glorified. And for some of us, that is really good news. He's going to change us. He's going to, and the, the, the looks is nothing. That's, that's totally not even important at all. It isn't that he's going to make you into a beautiful person that everybody's going to go, wow. He's going to conform you into the image of Christ in character. You're going to be like Jesus. Now you go back and read the gospels and you see the way Jesus acted and sometimes you scratch your head and go, wow, I don't get it. Like, like the way he treated the woman who was caught in adultery, she was caught in adultery. Now, some guys assume that they set her up. Well, maybe so, but the fact is she was committing adultery. And they bring her to Jesus, and they say, this woman has committed adultery. The glosses were to stone her. And they want Jesus to throw the stone. And Jesus says, whoever has no sin, cast the first stone. And they all dropped their stones and walked away. And then Jesus, this is ridiculous. Jesus should have said to her, listen, woman, you better get your life straightened out. You better get on the right path or you're doomed. But this is just like Jesus. And the thing is that Jesus knew her heart and he said to her, where are your, where are your accusers? And she says, I don't know, they've gone. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In other words, we look at that and we go, we just scratch our head. But hasn't he done you that way? Hasn't he treated you that way? I mean, haven't there been times when you thought, this is it. Now I've done it. Now it's over. I know he's going to cast me off. I know he's going to have nothing to do with me anymore. I finally have gone over the line. And then what you find is he shows you love and forgiveness. That's the kind of God that he is. This is why... uh, John Piper modified uh, Jack Miller's little saying. He said, uh, and he says it this way, you're more sinful than you know. And you know you're pretty sinful, right? But you're more sinful than you know. But you're more loved than you could imagine. God's love for you and his plan for you and his purpose for you in bringing you to himself is far greater than anything you could ever imagine. And so what this passage is about is about this the, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Now, knowing Christ takes some effort. It takes some effort. It takes some serious effort. You have to be convinced that this is an important thing in my life, that I come to really know Christ. Not about him. Yeah, you need to know about him, but it's knowing him as a person. You come to know him as your most intimate friend. And so, as you come to his word and you interact with Christ through his word. He lays you bare through his word. Hebrews 4.12, you know that verse that says, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, 
piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And we're filleted, is the word. We're laid bare, we're filleted before him to whom we must give an account. You know what he's saying? I'm going to show you what's really going on in your heart. But he does it through his word. This is why it's so tempting for us to stay away from the word. I always find out that I'm worse than I thought I was when I go to the word of God. Because it tells me the truth. And it lays me bare. But the wonderful thing is, is that this is a savior. This is our savior. And so we discover how desperately we need him. That we could never, we could never exaggerate and say, well, that's just too much. You know, I don't need that. It's like somebody saying, hey, I want to help you. Here's a thousand dollars. You say, ah, no, no, don't do that. I only need twenty dollars. And God pours out his grace upon you in the person of his son. And he says, I'm going to give you Christ. I'm going to give you Christ. And you can know him. And you can live in relationship with him. You can have an ongoing conversation with him that never stops, never ceases. And Paul says that's the most valuable thing in life. And so the, 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 perp- the very purpose of suffering is the loss of all things to gain Christ. I don't like suffering. I confess that. I don't like it. And uh, I'm, I catch myself all the time trying to talk God into, look, I'm your child. I, you know, I teach the Bible. Uh, could you please work this out this week? That wouldn't be so hard. I got to go to jury duty, grand jury over in San Francisco this week. I hate the idea of having to travel to San Francisco. I just think that's too hard for God to put me through. You know? And so I think, you know, I'm in good standing with God. Why doesn't he just work this out so that I don't have to do this? You've never thought like that, have you? Have you ever thought like that? That, you know, you're going through something really difficult, and you think, well, you know, God could take care of this really easy. Why does he let you suffer? Because he wants you to draw closer to him. And he's in charge of the process. And so Paul wants us to know this. That's why God allows us to suffer. Why did God ordain and, uh, Paul and accept, for Paul to accept the losses that it meant for him to be a Christian? This, this was a guy who was, a, who was very um, successful in what he did. He was well-known. He had quite a reputation. Why would God allow him to suffer? Why could Paul say, I've been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. It's no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul gives the answer again and again in, in these verses. Uh, that we have here in chapter 3. Verse 7, he says, I counted all these things as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, I came to see Christ and how he was, it was so valuable to know him that it was worth so much more than what I had to give up. I count all things to be lost. This first part of verse 8, I count all things to be lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The second part of verse 8, he says, for him... I have suffered the loss of all things. And then at the very end of verse 8, he says, I count them but rubbish, scubala, in order that I may gain Christ. And what if, what if somebody offered you a new Maserati 
And all they asked was, you have to get rid of that junk car you got. You know, the new one that you're still paying the payments on. You have to go turn that in. You, you can't keep that if you're going to get this, give this gift, receive this gift. And so what God wants us to do, he wants us to value Christ above all things in our lives. And so he is, he says, I do all this. And the reason I do it, I, the reason I put loss over everything that everybody thinks is worth so much is because I want to know Christ. And then he gives these four ways that we know Christ. He says, to know the power of his resurrection, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. What does that mean? It means to come to the place where you would obey the Father like Christ does, even to the point of your, take your own life being taken. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In other words, what sustains Paul in suffering the loss of all things is the confidence that is in his losing precious things in this world is gaining something more precious than them. And that's the knowledge of Christ. When I say a knowledge of Christ, I don't just mean taking a class on Jesus and finding out how to express, you know, all the biblical teaching about Jesus. I'm talking about knowing him as a person. Knowing him as your savior. Talking to him more than you talk to anybody else. Pouring out your heart to him. Jesus has made us so many promises. Like in John 15, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you desire and it'll be done for you. Now you could say, boy, that's exaggeration. Well, this is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the risen Christ. This is the eternal son of God who says this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you desire, and it will be given to you. Now, we all know that part of, the, the part of that is when his words are abiding in me and, me and I'm abiding in him, the desires that I have are going, to be the, are going to be the effect of having this relationship with him. I'm actually going to care about people I didn't even care about before. I, I might, I'm going to have uh, compassion for people that I normally wouldn't even have compassion for them. Don't you sometimes feel like people, they get themselves in trouble and you want to say to them, look, you got yourself in this mess, now get yourself out. I'm not going to waste my time. You ever feel like that? Wouldn't it be something if God felt like that towards you? Because isn't it true you got yourself in this mess? The only problem is you can't get yourself out. And God says, you got yourself in this mess now. I want to get you out. I want to have compassion on you. Jesus Christ came to where we were. He came all the way down to where we were so that he could bring us all the way up into the very presence of the triune God, that we could live out our eternity in fellowship with him. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, which means there is no way to expand on that. You can't get any better than that. He has already blessed you with every spiritual blessing. He's already poured into your life. Your big problem is you only know about a few of those blessings. But he has done things for you that you can't even imagine. And he's made you his own. He's made you an ambassador of Christ and given you the gospel so that you can actually, God can actually use you as an instrument in his hands to bless people who need his blessing desperately. 
And sometimes that's just a word of encouragement. But the, the only thing that will prepare me for that is knowing Christ. I have to know him. And so I just want to encourage you to take a first step. Just take the step of saying, I'm going to spend, I'm going to spend a half hour in the Word every morning in prayer, just the Word in prayer. I'm going to read the Word. I'm going to ask myself, what does this reveal to me about who God is, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is? And what does it say about what I should be doing? And then asking him to empower you and to enable you to live in fellowship with his son. You're, the fact that you know what you do know about Christ is a treasure that you could never put a value on. It's glorious. And he wants you to know him more. It's the most valuable thing in all of life. Let me pray for you. I want to have you stand. Would you stand with me? Since our, our music leader has left the building. Elvis has, has left the building. And so... Our Father, we are a needy people. We need Christ. Without him, we are lost and undone without any hope. I pray that you'd open our eyes to that truth, that you would make us aware of how much we need him. And then you would, you would work in our lives, Father, in the simplest kinds of ways as we come to your word. Would you open our eyes and open our heart? Let us see Christ for who he is. Open our eyes to the glory of your son, we pray that it would impact our lives. It would set us on the right path. It would change our hearts. It would put us into your service of loving people as your representatives, Father. We thank you so much for your word and how it cuts so deep into our hearts. And we want to be responsive to your word, Father. Please empower us to do that, I pray. Bless your people in a great way. I ask that this week would be a week in which we experience the utter joy there is in knowing Christ. As, as Peter put it, joy unspeakable and full of glory. May we experience that this week just because we're pursuing Christ, coming to know him as we want to know him, Father, we pray. And we ask this in the name of your Son and for his glory and for your joy, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.